Welcome me again. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. We continue through our series called Journey Through the Bible. Last week we discovered some themes in the book of Isaiah. And this week we're going to be looking at the message of the prophet Jeremiah. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to hear from you, God, and that is our desire. Lord, we don't want the opinion of man. Lord, we want the word of God. We want your truth to inform us of what is right and good and true, Lord. And if there is any, at any point in which our thinking or our lives contradicts, Lord, what you have spoken, pray that you would reveal that to us and grant us a willingness to turn, surrender, believe, trust, and obey all that you have commanded us, God, in view of all that you are. Your prophet tells us of a new covenant where we're changed by the power of the Spirit from the inside out. And I pray, O oh God, this morning that if there is one in here who has not been touched by the Spirit of the living God, pray that you might stretch out your hand this morning and save. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. And just let me review again for us where we have been on this journey. It's just important to review and keep in mind. It's going to help us to keep the whole storyline of the Bible in mind as we read and study it in the future. Uh, man sinned against God and fell and from the high calling for which they were given. And so God initiated what we can call his secret rescue plan through the family of Abraham. He told Abraham that he would give him a land, a people, a nation. And not just that, but he said, in you all the nations of the world would be blessed. He sent the people uh, into uh, Egypt. And there they multiplied and were later enslaved. And then God delivered them by the hand of Moses in the Exodus by the Passover lamb, the lamb slain in their stead, that they might escape from the wrath of God and be delivered into freedom from slavery and into the land of promise. And as they exited the land of promise, God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here's the terms of our relationship. Here's how you, here's how you are to live, not in order to be saved, but because I have saved you. This is what it means to be my covenant people. And God entered, uh, brought them into the promised land through the hand of Joshua. Then there was a period of judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then there was the period of the kings, most notably David, who was the king after God's own heart. But in the days of David's son Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two. Israel in the north, they called it, and Judah in the south, whose capital was Jerusalem. And eventually, both of these kingdoms, both the north and the south, gave into idolatry, committed idolatry, spiritual, spiritual adultery from the God who loved them, who saved them, who covenanted with them. And so God exiled them out of the land. But during the time of the kings, God raised up prophets. Last week we talked about Isaiah. This week we'll talk about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet during the time of Israel's exile, of, of no, of Judah's exile. So 
Jeremiah was in Jerusalem when it was seized by Babylon. And when it was destroyed in 586 BC and the temple was burned to the ground. He was there and he told them that this was going to happen and nobody listened. And so what we're going to learn this morning is about Jeremiah's message. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I now invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Jeremiah chapter 1 about Jeremiah's call to the prophetic ministry. Jeremiah chapter 1 beginning in verse 4. Verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand, put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of God. You may be seated. We'll see four things from our text, from our from this book this morning. Number one, God's unchanging purpose. Number two, God's unbelievable plan. And number three, God's unmitigated promise. God's unchanging purpose, God's unbelievable plan, and God's unmitigated promise. First, God's unchanging purpose. We learned something very profound, I think, from Jeremiah's calling as a prophet. We learned something about God's unchanging and sovereign purpose for Jeremiah, and yes, for Israel, and yes, for us. Just look at this language and think about it. It's, it's strong language, powerful language. It's astounding. God tells Jeremiah there in verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Imagine God telling that to you, before I formed you in the womb. I knew you. What does that mean? It's definitely some, it's this, this, it's this deep, personal, intimate, relational knowledge. God had a special plan, a purpose for Jeremiah's life. He had a very specific role to play in God's story of redemption. And God was raising up Jeremiah for that purpose. And so it's, 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 I mean, if you think about it, Jeremiah didn't have a whole lot of say-so in the matter. He, the God tells him, before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was going to be a prophet. That was the very, we, we, we could say that was the very purpose for which God brought him into existence. You see, God exercises a mysterious and oftentimes secret but real sovereignty over the lives of every single one of his creatures. God wanted a prophet, and he was going to get one, and so he raised up Jeremiah for that purpose. It was God's unchanging purpose for his life. You know, in the New Testament, they have a word for this. It's called grace. You see, God's grace is his freely, sovereignly choosing 
to give to us what we don't deserve. You see, God could have raised up anybody to be a prophet. He could have used anybody he wanted to, but he didn't. He used Jeremiah. He raised up Jeremiah. He extended this special grace to Jeremiah for this purpose in his plan. And when you come to a point in your life, and if you have known, if you know God and are, and are a follower of Christ, then you understand this. When you come to a point in your life and you realize how God's grace has extended to you, always you are humbled by it. You see, Jeremiah, God extended this grace to him and said, for this purpose I've raised you up. That you would be a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah, he's humbled by it. He says, how can I do this? Who am I to do this? I'm just a youth. And how does, how does God respond to him? Does God say, does God, you know, what, does God say what most of, us, most of us would say? And they say, oh, don't say that, Jeremiah. You're great. You're awesome. You got this. Is that what God says? No. What does God say? He says, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. You see, Jeremiah was going to be a prophet, not because of who he was, but because of who God was. Jeremiah was going to speak his words, not because Jeremiah was so great, but because God is so great. And God would be with him. You see... It, it, deep down, we all know what's true is that we are weak, we are undeserving, we are powerless, and that's reality. So we don't change reality by trying to buffer up our self-esteem, but guess what? All of our excuses go out the door when God says, but hey, I'm with you. Well, if God's with me, then there's no more excuse for me because God, because all things are possible with God. So all our excuses evaporate before God. You see, God, and this, is, this, by the way, is the amazing thing about grace. God does not choose, he says, the eloquent or the powerful or the rich or the influential in this world. In fact, the Bible, in fact, the Apostle Paul says explicitly that God tends to choose those who are weak, who are lowly in the eyes of the world. Why would God do this? Actually, it makes perfect sense. Because through weak vessels, his power shines all the more brightly. You see, when you do something that all the people who really know you say, how in the world did that happen? They'll know that, only, that it was God and not you. This is part of God's plan. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, Jeremiah's story is really our story. We don't deserve to know God. We don't deserve to, to serve Him. But as Paul said... Just as God chose Jeremiah and called him to this service by his grace, so God has chosen us. Now, few of us, like Jeremiah, get to ex experience the privilege of knowing specifically our, our role in God's plan of redemption. God told Jeremiah what he was going to do. Or we have to discern our purpose a little differently through prayer, 
through the discernment of our gifts and callings and the unique opportunities that God brings our way, and through the ministry of the church where people are encouraging us and, and, um, and we we're serving in our gifts and we are able to develop our gifts in the way in which we serve Him. But you can be assured of this, that if God's grace has extended to you such that you are a follower and believer of Jesus Christ, while the specifics to you may be a little blurry, you can rest assured this, you, God has a purpose for you. In other words, God doesn't, God doesn't call us and save us and redeem us to just so we can just sit in the pew. He has given us a purpose to serve him. We have to discover what that is. We have to think about it and we have to work at it. Remember the, the, remember the, the parable of the servants. Where God entrusted to his servant, where Jesus tells his master entrusted to the servants various uh, amounts. And he was going to go away on a journey. And they had to figure out what, how they were going to serve their God with what he had given them. Because why? Because when he returned, they give an account for what they have done. And the people, and there was one servant, remember him? He just took it and buried it. What did he do? He did nothing. He did nothing. And he gave account for it. God doesn't save us for no purpose, but to think hard about how we're to use him and how he's going to use us. And, and it's not just this, but we don't, we don't even really have to think that hard about it. Because although we have not had a vision from heaven, maybe like a Jeremiah has, we got something probably even more clear than that. We have this book where as clearly as God spoke to Jeremiah, he has spoken to us. We have a mission. And what is that mission? Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, if we were to look in the Bible and, and try to this try to distill a purpose for our lives while we exist, it could be something like this. Uh, the greats, what, what we know or what we call the greats. Jesus said that there is a great commandment, and Jesus gave his disciples one of his last words to them. He gave them the great commission. You can put the two together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, and make disciples of all nations. So we could say that our purpose, the reason we exist is this, is to love God and to love neighbor supremely by making disciples of all nations till Jesus comes back. That's why we exist. And if you think about it, it actually makes perfect sense. What greater way can you love God and what greater way can you love your neighbor than making Christ known? You see, you see, you tell people about things that you love. You love your wife, you tell people about it. You love a restaurant, you tell people about it. You love your grandkids, let me tell you something, you can't get them to shut up about it. If you love God, people will know. They should know. That is why we exist. To make Christ known. To tell other people about him. To see people come to know him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. As we proclaim the Christ, the gospel is the power to save. You don't save people. You proclaim the gospel. The gospel saves them. 
And then you, you teach them, Jesus says. You, you follow them. You say, hey, come. I, I will show you how to pray. I will show you how to read your Bible. I will invest in you so that you can then go make disciples of your own. That's included there in the Great Commission. We, we exist to make disciples. Who will make disciples? Because if God's grace terminates on us, then it's to no purpose, right? If I'm saved, but then I do nothing with it, then what good am I? I've become a stagnant pool of God's grace rather than a flowing river of God's grace. It has ended on me and doesn't extend to others through me. God hasn't saved us to that end, but we have a grace-given mission to make Christ known because we have been born again by God's grace, by the Spirit of God. God has an unchanging purpose of our lives, to love God and to love neighbor by making disciples who make disciples for the glory of Christ. So number one, God's unchanging purpose. Number two, God's unbelievable plan. God's unbelievable plan. We'll read this passage from Jeremiah chapter 29 to you, beginning in verse 3. God's unbelievable plan. It says here, the letter, so this was a letter written by Jeremiah to the exiles. It says, the letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore the fortunes, your fortunes, and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You see, in this passage, we learn about God's unbelievable plan for the exiles. So, if you read the story of Jeremiah and in, in the Kings, there, there are two, uh, perhaps three different distinct times where Nebuchadnezzar came and, and took exiles out of Judah and brought them back to Babylon. And, uh, and you, you have to think about these exiles. These exiles who were taken out of the promised land, the land of promise, kicked out of the land and taken into Babylon. Of course, they naturally had questions. Questions like, what about God's promise? Will God ever forgive us and bring us back into the land? How long will it be? How long will we be here? How are we supposed to live as Jews 
in a foreign land that's not our own. You see, Jeremiah himself battled false prophets, if you read the book, who were lying to the exiles, saying things like it would be just a couple of years before the exile would be over. But God says, no, Jeremiah, you see, people didn't like Jeremiah because he preached an unpopular message. He said, no, you have sinned against God, and it's not just going to be swept under the rug. But at the same time, he gave the exiles hope. That after, after a whole lifetime, really, 70 years, God would once again visit his people. He had a plan. You see, God had a plan for them, an unbelievable plan for them to restore them and to save them in a way that they couldn't even imagine. And in the meantime, however, Jeremiah told them how they were supposed to live as exiles, as strangers. In a land not their own. This is what he tells them in verse 5 and following there. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, it's striking here that God promises to bless the exiles. But one of the ways that God promises to bless the exiles is by using them to be a blessing. To who? To the Babylonians. To to who? Their oppressors, their captors. Seek the good of the people among whom you are exiled. Seek their, seek their welfare. Why? Because in their welfare you will find your welfare. welfare, welfare. <laughs> and this is an important lesson for us as Christians. Why? Especially, especially as our faith and our beliefs and our worldview become stranger and stranger to those around us who don't know us. You see, to make a generalization here, People who tend to be theological, theologically liberal oftentimes lean or experience a temptation, we might say, to be too much in the world. But at the same time, I would say there's an equal and opposite temptation for more conservative-leaning, theologically conservative-leaning people to be too much out of the world. That is, it can be really tempting at times to withdraw into our Christian bubble. And just wave off, you know, we, we, feel, we feel all self-righteous because we're shaking the dust off our feet. And saying, let the world go to hell if they're going to, but we're going to stay in our little Christian bubble. Is that what God says to do in the time of our exile? Remember, I preached a whole sermon about how we are exiles. We have a land of promise that we have not yet attained, that we are waiting for. Right? What, is the, what does the Bible say? It says, engage the world. The lost world around us. Now, of course he's not saying, don't embrace sin. Don't embrace an unbiblical worldview. But seek the welfare of the community in which you live. Do good to those around you. Be a good neighbor to believer and to unbeliever alike. This is why all throughout church history, everywhere Christians went, they didn't just preach the gospel, although they did, and we must preach the gospel. 
but not to the exclusion of seeking the good of the community. That's why Christians, everywhere they went in the 2,000 years of church history, they built schools. They built hospitals. They did work towards social reform. Not because that saves people, but because it, it, it serves the welfare of the good of our community and it adorns the gospel. We are, to make, we are to make an intentional impact for the good of our community. Such that, if a, such that a lost person in our community, if someone slandered us, a lost person would come to our defense. That's the kind of good we're supposed to be doing. Such that we should be doing intentional good for our community, such that if somehow our church disappeared overnight, the community would be devastated that we're gone. Because we're doing such good. We're seeking the welfare of our community. We're involved. We're seeking the good of other people. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what, that's what Jeremiah told these exiles. Seek the good. We should be involved, not just withdraw into our Christian bubble, but seek to do good in the structures, the programs, the activities, the clubs, the community, the government. To do all that was in our power to seek the welfare of our community. Again, that... Now, again, that's not the gospel. Doing good is not the gospel, but it adorns the gospel. Doing good is not the gospel, but it tells, but it shows the lost world that the gospel is real. That it's true. That it really does make a difference in my life such that the gospel has changed me. The spirit of God has changed me so that my life is reoriented so that I don't just care about me and my own. But I now care about other people enough to get out there, do good, serve other people so that they know that there is a God among us. And so we have to think both individually and corporately how we can seek the welfare of our community, how we can do good to the community right here around this church and in Dodge County in general. And then they'll know that the gospel we proclaim is more than just words, but also the power of God to salvation. So we see God's unchanging purpose and we see God's unbelievable plan, his plan for us that as we await the unbelievable plan he has for us in salvation, we live as exiles in this world. And number three, finally, God's unmitigated promise. God's unmitigated promise. You see, God told Jeremiah that he would set him over kings and nations, that he would both throw down and destroy, but he would also build up and to plant. You see, Jeremiah prophesied long and hard about the coming judgment of Judah for their idolatry. But at the same time, he didn't just prophesy destruction. He, offered, he also prophesied hope and salvation and restoration. And we have in Jeremiah one of the clearest and most important passages about the, the greatest of these promises, and that is about the new covenant, God's new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, 
declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. That's interesting. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So this is important. And I think maybe lots of I think maybe many this is kind of cloudy or fuzzy for people. Let's think about what exactly is happening here. And let's talk about the new covenant. But first, let's just, let's just go down to the very bottom. First, what is a covenant? <laughs> What's a covenant? So just review here. A covenant is an agreement. It's a promise. It's a deeply relational contract between two parties that unites them and expresses the privileges, responsibilities, and duties that those two have in relationship to one another. The clearest example, of course, that we have of a covenant, of what God is talking about here is, of course, marriage. In fact, the Bible says that God gave marriage and God instituted marriage so that we would understand what God's relationship with his people is like. You see, marriage is what? It's an intimate, deep, relationship-establishing covenant between two parties that comes both with duties and responsibilities, but also joys and privileges. Why? Because you two are bonded in a powerful and unique way. And because of this, marriage is, of course, the perfect example of this, because this is why God says, in the passage we just read, it says, they broke the covenant. He says, even though I was their husband. See that? So what then is the old covenant that God made with the Jews? He, he tells us. He said there that it was the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. What does that mean? It means God saved the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And at Mount Sinai, at that covenant, when, when we, you know, I, I preached a sermon about that. That covenant was God establishing his relationship with his people. In essence, God was marrying them. I'm your God. I'm your husband. You are my people. And what does that mean? It means all kinds of wonderful things, doesn't it? It means... That they would have all the attendant privileges of having a unique, powerful, deeply covenant relationship with God Almighty. He would be their God. He would fight for them. He would bless them. He would work all things for their good. But it also meant what? That they had responsibilities to God. That they had to be faithful to Him. To the covenant again it's like it's like a marriage right you see the jews in that in the covenant which sometimes we call the law they had all these weird commands that that many of them sound unusual and they sound strange to us but it's really it's not different it's just expressions of what it means to be faithful to your spouse right and we do all kinds of weird things to show our love and faithfulness to our spouse right all the way from, from uh, uh, rolling up the toothpaste tube the right way, <laughs> right? 
to, to put in the, the toilet paper on, on, you know, where it rolls out the right way. And there is a correct way, by the way. And, um, and so we do all these weird, weird things. Why? Because we're in covenant relationship and we love them and we want to serve them and show our faithfulness to them. You see, when you're married, you just can't do whatever you want. God help you if you do. You can schedule an appointment with you and I'll meet with you and your spouse this week. You have, you have, you have privileges with that person that no other human on earth does. But you also have responsibilities to them. Why? Because you have covenanted together to love one another. That was God's covenant with Israel. You see, keeping the terms of the covenant for Israel, remember, it did not save them. God saved them and God established the covenant with them before they even kept a single law. It was nothing about earning God's favor. You don't, in marriage, you're not supposed to be serving your wife in order for them to love you. Their love for you should have been established when you got married and they made the covenant with you. The love is just the expression of the covenant that's already been made. Your co- relational faithfulness and commitment to one another. Faithfulness to the covenant does not make you married. It keeps you married. But Israel broke the covenant. And what we see in the story of Israel is that Israel's failure to keep God's covenant was more than just a historical reality. They, I mean, they historically, they broke it, but it was, it was deeper than that. Israel's breaking of God's covenant revealed something far deeper, and that is that there was something fundamentally wrong with Israel. That is, it's not just that Israel didn't keep the covenant. It's that Israel couldn't keep the covenant. You see, Jeremiah himself in Jeremiah 17, 9 said this. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And later in the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul would describe the nature, the root nature of all humanity, not just Israel, but all humanity in Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying it's not just that Israel... Israel's not just didn't keep the covenant. They couldn't keep the covenant. Why? Because something is fundamentally wrong with humanity in their nature. And that is we are spiritually dead. That's what the Bible says. Paul in Romans 3 says, he says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Together they have become worthless. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. So it says, we are spiritually dead. We do not have the capacity to keep faith with God. And if we can't keep faith with God, then how can we stay in covenant relationship with him? In other words, how can we be saved if we can't 
if we don't have the capacity to love God from a whole and pure heart? How can we be saved? The answer is this. The new covenant. It's the new covenant. What is the new covenant? We, we read it. Verse 33 there of Jeremiah 31. He says, this is the covenant. Listen, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. What does this mean? It means that the new covenant is different from the old in this way. Because that God himself will empower us to keep the covenant. God will provide a new covenant whereby he himself fundamentally changes us and give us, gives us a new heart so that we can keep the faith, can trust and obey and love him. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And this is what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. It's the same thing we just read in Jeremiah. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And listen, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What's Jeremiah saying? He's saying the same thing that Jeremiah is saying is that ultimately we cannot keep God's covenant. And so God, in order to keep his promise, is going to do something miraculous. He's going to save us by divine heart transplant. A miracle of grace where he reaches into our hearts and takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and makes us spiritually alive. He makes us new. And that's how, that's how, he gives us, a, he changes us from the inside out. And how does he do this? Ezekiel, how does he, he, he do this? Ezekiel said it. He says, I will put my spirit within you. Remember, come on, you got to connect the dots here. Remember, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You remember? John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's room? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the new covenant. Remember Jesus in the gospel of Luke when he instituted the Lord's Supper. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant. Jesus did what? Jesus came to inaugurate the new covenant. How did he do it? How did he do it? After his ascension into heaven, what did he do? He poured out the Holy Spirit. And what happened when, when the gospel was proclaimed? Remember when Peter uh, got, he had the vision 
about, the, about eating the unclean animals and God sent him to Cornelius and he proclaimed the gospel. And what happened? The Holy Spirit fell and the Gentiles were saved. This is the new covenant. You see, many people misunderstand this and we, we preached through the book of Galatians earlier, if you remember. And God, Paul rebuked them. Why? Because they were living in the new covenant and they tried to go back to the old Many people misunderstand Christianity's old covenant religion. I have, to, I have to keep all these rules to be saved. But that actually misses the whole point of why we needed the new covenant and why Jeremiah prophesied of the new covenant. You can't keep all the rules. It's impossible. Apart from God, we're spiritually dead. Christianity is not rule keeping. It's life transformation. You see, it's hard to discern at first, but the longer you walk with the Lord, the clearer you see it. When you look back over your life, you realize, my goodness, God has changed me. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Something has happened to me. God has changed me. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the clearer it becomes. That's what salvation is. That's what new birth is. It's being changed by the power and the Spirit of God. So as I close this morning, my question to you is this. Not do you go to church. Not do you put a little bit in the offering plate. Not do you pray. Not even do you read your Bible. My question to you is this. Have you been changed by God? Have you seen His work in your life? Have you been convicted of your sins? Do you have a desire in your heart to honor him? Are things different in your life because of your faith in Christ? Do you want new things that you used to not want? Do you not want new things that you used to want? Has a new heart been placed within you? Have you been changed by God? If not, my dear friend... It may be that you don't know God. And the Bible says this, that Christ came to give us new life. And the gospel this morning is this, that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead to conquer the penalty for our sins so that we won't have to die forever. And the Bible says one day he's coming back. And by faith, through grace, that's why I pray, I pray this morning. That if someone in this room, if they don't know him, that you might be saved today. That a divine heart transplant might take place right now. That you would see Jesus Christ in the way you've never seen him before. And be saved. Come to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Surrender to him. No longer say my will be done in my life. But look up to Christ and say your will be done in me. Be saved. And you will experience. You will experience. God's unchanging purpose. His unbelievable plan. And his unmitigated promise. Let's pray.